And uh, when it does that, it creates a low pressure area in your airplanes to get in that deal and down it goes. And uh, I know one time I had a uh, biologist and she kept wanting to get down closer and I told her I didn't think it was a good idea, but I would try it. <laughs> so I came down and got down below the ridge and all of a sudden I had pencils floating on the ceiling <laughs> and uh, and I just came right on down the canyon and headed home and she says, I'm not done. And I said, yeah, I am. <laughs> so, Oh, man. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. What was the, uh, what was the first airplane you ever flew? That I flew in or flew? Uh, both. Well, the first airplane I flew in was uh, about a 1950 Stinson. And what is the Stinson? Uh, Stinson's an airplane that oh, was pretty popular back around the, in the 50s. Mm-hmm. There's still quite a few around. Um, it was a the one I flew in was a four-place airplane that they, uh, a guy in Enterprise owned it, and he had a little flying service. Uh, his name is Ray Dunsmore. And uh, what I've been told, and I don't know if this is true, but that's what I was told, is that he learned to fly during World War One. Hmm. He never, the war was over before he ever left the country for combat but there was a lot of fellows that learned to fly in world war one and uh so anyway after that uh the choices were to find some other line of work or go barnstorming or whatever um anyway he ended up working for the ford motor company and i was told that he ended up out west to help set up car dealerships and so he got to know the West pretty good. And uh, so Ray ended up settling in Enterprise. And uh, he and his wife, he, they raised a daughter. And uh, in fact, I think he's he and his wife are buried at, there at Enterprise Cemetery. 
But um, anyway, he was still flying when I was about five years old. And uh, my dad had a hang crew. And he told him, he says, well, he said, you guys have done a really good job. We're going to take you all for a, a plane flight over the valley. So they hired Ray to do that. And so on the second flight, I got to go along. And I sat on my dad's lap. Probably not legal, but uh, I was five years old. <laughs> I can remember sitting there watching the rudder pedals move back and forth as we're taking off and landing. And then flying over our home, you could see all the cows, and they looked really small. And I remember flying over Wallow Lake and back to Enterprise. And uh, so that pretty well hooked me for wanting to fly <laughs> <laughs> so what year would that have been i think that was 1954 okay the summer of 54 gotcha and uh so i was five years old and uh so the neighbors uh, a couple of the neighbor boys were working for my dad at that time helping put hay up it used to take quite a few more people to put hay up than it does today and so then the next memory I have of airplanes, uh, I was watching from our place. I could see this ag plane down there spraying in what is now belongs to James. And uh, that was probably, probably the same summer. And I took off looking because I was going to get close and had my folks rather concerned and when I got back, my grandmother, I remember this very plainly, taking a rope and tying me to a tree because she said, that's what we do with runaway dogs. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that was kind of the what I wanted to do. Um, always had that dream, but I never, I didn't know how to go about learning or anything after I got out of high school. I didn't realize they had a flying club even. So, but I knew a couple of guys that flew and had had flown with them. And then probably in 19, I got out of high school in 67 and about 1971, I went over to Boise and I had plans of having the military teach me how to fly. Right. And they told me that I wasn't, a good physical specimen for their needs so they sent me home and so I kind of gave up wanting to learn to fly because I didn't think I could pass the flight physical hmm. and uh, so anyway probably in about 78 or 79 uh, my dad had got sick so they Bud Stangle flew him to Portland and he said, you just will go along. And so I remember on the way back, he says, well, why don't you fly my airplane? And I said, well, I don't know anything about it. And he said, well, just steer for that hill over there. So I did, and I found out, well, this is kind of fun. Yeah. And so I joined the flying club, Chief Joseph Flyers. And at that time, there was about, there were over 40 members in the club. And they had four airplanes. They had a 150 two 172s and a 182 at the time I joined. And the, air, the 150 was $10 an hour. And 
the instructor was at $10 an hour. And so it was actually probably one of the cheapest places to learn to fly is in Enterprise. And at that time, I was driving truck. and uh, Driving log trucks? Yes. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, Harold, <clears throat> the guy that I was working for, had transitioned. He was transitioning away. We transition, He transitioned to hauling agricultural products. And so he bought this outfit called Farm Supply Distributors, and which is still going today. And so I did that for a couple of three years. And, uh, and then I decided I didn't want to keep driving truck. I wanted to fly. I ended up going to Texas and uh, went to a place down there at Fort Worth. And uh, that was, I forgot what year, 80, 1980, 81. So I went down there and got my commercial instrument and flight instructor ticket. And I couldn't wait to get back here to where there was real mountains. Right. Um, I got in trouble. I was coming in to, to land at Fort Worth. The tower told me to report over Eagle Mountain. And I'm flying along pretty quick. He calls me and said, I thought I told you to report over Eagle Mountain. And, and why I said this, I don't know. But I just said, well, I haven't seen any mountain yet. So I don't know if they appreciated that because it was a little hill. That was maybe 300 <laughs> feet higher than the rest of the train, and they called it a mountain. But <laughs> well, Texans like to think that everything's bigger in Texas, but uh, mountains are certainly not a good example of that. That's right. Yeah. So, And then after that, I came back and started working for Stangles there in the shop, and then I did a little flight instructing. And then Bud had me uh, flying scenic flights with his air, one of his airplanes. And so I built some time up doing that. And then Stangles, uh, Bud and Margaret um, wanted me to buy Mountain. And uh, the banks at that time were real wary of the airplane business. And uh, so, and I didn't really have any credit built up. So they said, well, we will finance you. And so they financed me, and I felt like they they were just well, they were they were special people, and uh, otherwise I don't think a person could have got going in business. And that's what it usually takes is somebody that is willing to help you right. along the way. And so that's how I got started. And as I was taken over, Bud said, "I'll show you how to really fly." <laughs> so I felt like. I was pretty privileged to have somebody like Bud uh, take me into some of these places. And, and he did that for a lot of these guys that are around here. Mm-hmm. He showed them how to get into some of the more challenging places. And and uh, so I felt privileged doing that. And then um, he was retiring, and so somebody had to do the game census flights. So he helped get me going on that, showed me what he did, and and so that really worked out well. And game census is um, flying around looking for deer and elk and counting them and stuff like that. Yes. Yeah. Did you ever do species other than deer and elk? Oh, yeah. Bighorn Big, sheep? Bighorn sheep, goats, um, cougars. Oh, really? Yeah. We'd see, and bear. You'd see bear. Yeah. But uh, cougar are really hard to find. 
because they're pretty sneaky, just like a house cat hiding looking for a mouse. Right. Um, just a bigger variety, and uh, so usually though, if you if you saw elk staring at something and not paying attention to us, we figured there was probably a bear or cougar. Yeah. Out there. Yeah. And uh, back when that and then. We didn't have any wolves uh, in this area. Uh, just most of the predators we found were coyotes and cougar and bear. Were there more um, deer and elk then or fewer? What's what's changed? You've been flying around here looking at critters for a long time. When I first started, there were lots of elk. Um, the deer population was, I think, was a lot better. We didn't have... The numbers of whitetail that we have now—that's mm-hmm. a big change. And the mule deer's the numbers have gone down, I think. Yeah. Elk numbers. Uh, the last couple of years, we did game census that I did it, uh, and the numbers had dropped dramatically. Hmm. Uh, Snake River was down. Um, the Chesnim Zumwalt counts were up. Uh, the Minam. Uh, Wanaha, most of those places were all down. Yeah. And uh, we did a predator study a number of years ago, and uh, it was mostly cougar and bear that were uh, eating the young. Mm -hmm. So that was a study they did. I did that for about five years. Yeah. So you've, you know, experienced aviation in a lot of ways through a bunch of different wars, you know, with that first gentleman being trained in world war one. And, you know, these, each of these wars has a big impact on aviation. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so how have you seen that change over time from, from the influence of the, the Korean war pilots and the world war two pilots, Vietnam, and, and now these modern, modern generation wars, how has that changed aviation? Mm. I think the biggest impact that I would say the the Gulf War has had a big impact because that's when GPS really started changing how people navigated. Hmm. GPS originally was just military, and then people began to find out. And we used Loran for a while, and that was a, that was a big change in technology. Um, what was Loran? long-range navigation and it's it's ground-based okay you had there's a station up at george washington uh there was i forget where the others there's one in nevada and they had they used what they call chains uh we had um i forget what our chain was but i flew to libby montana one time and coming back i knew where enterprise was but it kept telling me to go east about 20 miles. Oh, really? And uh, so that was one of the problems with Loran. It wasn't perfect. It wasn't perfect. And uh, But if you're just flying around here, it was pretty good. Mm-hmm. I could fly to Portland and back or to Boise and back or wherever, and it would be pretty spot on. Mm-hmm. But if you cha- went into another place where it had a different chain, um then it would not be very accurate. Gotcha. Uh, an example of that was a guy from Chicago had a P-51. 
uh, it's a World War II fighter, and these guys get him now and fix them all up. And he had flown to Seattle, and on the way back, he was intending to land in Lewiston for fuel. Well, he was getting really low on fuel, and here he was circling Enterprise, and he saw the airport, and so he needed fuel, he lit. That was a pretty exciting day to see a P-51 landed Enterprise. And so Bud was able to show him how to change the chain so he could have more accurate um, navigation. And I forget what year that was. That was in the late 80s. And, uh, and so then in 90, probably in 92, I'm guessing maybe 94, that's when GPS started. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't real accurate, but it was better than Lorand because right. it was satellite-based. So that's one of the big changes I've seen um, as far as military influence. A lot of the Vietnam pilots supplied most of the helicopter uh, jobs for a number of years. Most of those guys are probably getting pretty long in the tooth now, but... Um, I know uh, even back when I was logging, we had Vietnam pilots flying the logging helicopters. And it, some of them were a little bit wild. <laughs> 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 and uh, they had to calm them down a little bit so they, because they were going to get somebody hurt. But, right. Um, they really liked flying close to the ground and closer than they needed to a lot of times. Yeah. 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 When I was repelling and fighting fire, there was definitely um, a, a big contingent of the Vietnam pilots that were still um, in commercial aviation. And I think there still are, but um, the, some of the Vietnam guys, they just could not help but fly map of the earth. And I remember we had to repel and get this guy um, just over the California border from Reno. And he'd been in a four-wheeler accident and had broken some ribs. And it wasn't too bad. I think he had like broken ribs and broken arm or something like that. Um, got didn't have a punctured lung. wasn't going to die. He, he needed a ride to the hospital, um, but he needed a comfortable ride. And this pilot, man, he was back in Vietnam mode, and he was just right over the treetops. And it was a really rough flight. I kept telling him like, "We just need smooth right now. Like we're we're going plenty fast enough." And uh, and then the other unrelated but kind of wild thing about that is we were in too big of a helicopter to land on top of the hospital. So we had to land in the playground right next to it. And, of course, as soon as you try and land a helicopter on kids, they just come flocking to it. Um, and I had to bail out when we were still in the air and kind of corral kids away from the tail rotor and everything else. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, those guys were really incredible pilots, but it was a unique flying style for sure. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I can remember some of those guys... Um, well, like I say, when we were still logging, those guys, they would race each other. Who's going to get the most logs to the deck Yeah. in the shortest period of time? Uh, but during the flying for fires for the Forest Service, uh, we had a lot of guys that were really sharp. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had one guy, he had been shot down in Vietnam a couple of times. And... Uh, and he was flying on a contract for the Forest Service. The helicopter, at that time, we didn't have 
really good communications or a way to to pinpoint where we were. So we called in every 15 minutes our location. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this one guy, his name was Rick. He didn't call in on on his 15-minute call in. The half hour went by, and I got a call and said, can we go look? So hurried up, put fuel in the airplane. We took off, and we started searching. And I said, you know, there's a pond here, and there's a pond there. So we looked at those ponds, and we found one of the ponds with a helicopter in it upside down. Well, that was pretty scary. Right. And uh, so anyway, we made a low pass or two, and uh, the pilot was laying there on the on the shore mm-hmm. above the water, and he waved at us. So he knew he was alive, but yeah. his helicopter was upside down in the water. <laughs> And uh, and it was a, a power plant failure. Oh. And uh, basically, it, the governor had a line break, which told the engine didn't need power. And so it went to idle, and, of course, down he went and rolled over in the water. And he, uh, in the crash, he broke his back. And so that was kind of the end of his, he, he'd had it. He said that was enough, and. But he said he'd been shot down twice in Vietnam, so I don't know. That was that was kind of a the end of the Vietnam type flying for him. So what kind of uh, hard landings have you been a part of? <sighs> oh, let's see. Can't really think of anything uh, other than landing down at Pittsburgh Landing, and uh, windsock looked like it was calm. And uh, and it was rougher than a cob. <laughs> and that's down there in Hell's Canyon. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I had a veterinarian with me, and supposedly they had emergency. The horse was had a big cut on his leg, hmm. and they were all shook up because the horse was hurt. And so I felt like I had to get down there. Well, we got it was just rougher than a cob going in there, and the the vet that was with me does not like to fly and (laughs) so anyway we get in there and it was uh one of those deals where the wind i didn't know it was that gusty Hmm. the wind was not doing anything and about the time i touched down a gust of wind caught me and just picked me up and then dropped me and there's a big ditch at the end of that strip and uh so I thought, man, I'm going to go in the ditch, and I didn't want to do that. So I tried to turn, and the note, the fork came off the front of the airplane. It's kind of like riding a bicycle down the hill and putting the front brake on. And it just kind of flopped upside down, just kind of just, I thought it was going to be just fine and in slow motion, went upside down. So I had all the vet's gear <coughs> tied down. Good thing. Yeah. We get all of that out, and he went to work on the horse, and I looked at my airplane and thought, well, we're not going to fly out of here. And, right. And kind of an interesting thing, when it went upside down, it pushed the wing a little bit enough that the that the, I couldn't open the door. Oh. And I shut the the master switch off, and, the, and I shut the fuel off, and... Uh, Upside down, it's really hard to reach that fuel valve. So anyway, I went to open the door, and it wouldn't open. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
I broke the hinges on it getting out of there. I just, <laughs> I, man, I wanted out. Because I've heard a lot of stories that the crash is survivable, but they're pinned in and they and the, the airplane catches fire. Right. And so I wanted out of that thing. Mm-hmm. And I broke the door hinge off. And, and, of course, the vet clinic had the pictures posted there for a number of years. And everybody knew about it, so. <laughs> well. How many hours have you flown at this point? A little over 20,000. 20,000. So that is 20,000 hours would be 833 days in the air. I hadn't thought of that. Um, So you've spent years, years in the air, mostly in Wallowa County, right? Yep. Yeah. So I think one little you know, flipping in there, playing upside down and everybody being okay. And that, that's not too bad. No, but it's uh, still one of them things you don't want to do. Yeah. Yeah. But you've seen a lot of other people crash in that time. Yeah. I've known a lot of guys that crashed. How does that affect you um, as a pilot, as a, as a professional pilot, when, when other aviators, you know, crash and live, crash and die? Um, it just makes you realize you've got to be careful. Yeah. And uh, um, a number of years ago, back around, let's see, probably was that 2000, I think the fall of 2000, um, a fellow over at Baker was flying, disappeared, and they did a lot of searching and stuff. And the, But I couldn't get out of here. We were fogged in in Enterprise for probably a month. And they never did find him until the next spring. And a rancher was up repairing fence up on this, uh, I think they call it Sturgill Mountain. Mm -hmm. And he looked down and he saw the remains of this airplane. And it had crashed. And, uh, And the guy that was doing it, he had a lot of time in the Midwest flying freight. You know, like... uh hauling mail and freight and stuff but he'd never he he wasn't experienced in flying in the mountains and stuff and uh in fact i ended up flying for the same outfit because they couldn't find him and uh they wanted me to do things that you couldn't do and they they weren't very happy that i re, because i refused to get down where they wanted me to um they didn't want to use the Cub. They wanted to use the big plane because they always had two or three people going along. And uh, fortunately with the fellow from Baker, it was just him and the one biologist. and So he didn't have a whole plane load of people. But um, that, that kind of makes you stop and think. And then even this last year, a very experienced pilot from Lewiston ended up... Um, having a mid-air collision up by Coeur d'Alene. And uh, so there were a number of people involved that were killed in that. So it kind of makes you realize that you just have to keep, it's like one guy told me, you got to be like a hootie owl, keep, just keep looking all around. Yeah. So, yeah. It's... Do you ever find yourself getting complacent and, and skipping steps and, and then you kind of got to rein yourself back in again, or, or are you pretty good about that? Well, I, 
I have to admit that there are times, especially if you get really tired, um, you get complacent. Yeah. And so you have to just tell yourself, be careful, be careful. What are some of the more challenging places around here to land in? I, I assume you don't like going back to Pittsburgh Landing. Not with that airplane. Not with that airplane. It's fine for, I mean, you could go in there if it's cool. Mm-hmm. But if it's hot, um, I've gone in there when it was 110 degrees, and that was a that was an emergency. There was a a boat that had they called it a bilge explosion, and uh, there was 13 people, as I recall, on board this pretty good sized boat there, and it was on the Idaho side of Pittsburgh, and uh, they went to start the engine. And um, most of the people on there were, oh, it was like a severe sunburn. Oh. But <clears throat> two of the people I remember at time were burned very bad. The I probably shouldn't say this, but it was bad enough that the skin was coming off. Yeah. They, so they just hadn't turned their blowers on and they had a bunch of fumes right. in the, yep. so it was a jet, inboard yep. jet boat, and yeah, and then it blew up when they cranked it. So I went in and I picked up three guys, and I wasn't sure we were going to get out of there because it, it just kept getting hotter and hotter during the day. And uh, so I loaded up three guys and took them to Lewiston, and the ambulance met us there in Lewiston. But these guys were in a lot of pain. Yeah. And the, the part that bothered me was the people that were burned really bad couldn't feel it. Yeah. They they. Didn't have any feeling. Yeah. So, and they were in shock. Sure. So that was one time that I went in there. It was pretty challenging, and but it was an emergency, and and I just figured, well, come to the end of the strip, it's going to fly. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, because yeah. there's a 20-foot drop-off, and, and uh, so we were able to do that, and I didn't have a full load of fuel. Mm-hmm. But uh, mine them can be challenging. Uh, that's one of them places that even last summer I had guests that were supposed to be in there and I went in and I looked at that windsock and it was going back and forth and, and it was pretty rough and I just turned around and I came home Yeah. and uh, I felt kind of bad because there was no place around Enterprise for these people to stay. Right. They had to go back to Elgin to find a place to stay. So, I mean, that's just, when it's like that, you just don't go. Well, it's, it takes a lot of courage to be able to say no to a bad situation. And I think that that's a, a critical trait for somebody in your profession to have. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, that was, uh, that's one of those places, uh, you know, you can, there's places you can land with a Cub or something like that, but with a 206 or anything, you can't do that. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, mine them can be a piece of cake in the morning right? when it's cool and things like that. Uh, but in the mid-afternoon, it can be pretty challenging. Have you ever run into a situation where you kind of had to bob and weave around that canyon to find some air that could get you up? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's kind of canyon flying. Yeah. Um, so describe that technique. Well, <clears throat> you just have to kind of hunt. For a place where the air is going to push you up, and uh, 
if it's really hot, the other thing you got to consider is your engine. Mm -hmm. uh, because if it's if it's 100 degrees and you're trying to climb, um, you may not be able to climb. You might just be able to keep going down the canyon because you got to keep that engine cool. Yeah. you got to keep air flowing over. And so if you try to climb at, say, um, 90 miles an hour instead of 100, your engine's going to get hot. Right. But yet it would climb at 90, but you can't climb at 100. So it's just one of those things you just have to hunt back and forth across the canyon and see if you can find some air that'll help lift you up. And then with that, if you've got air coming up in the canyon, as soon as it goes over that next ridge, it's probably going to be dropping a little bit, right? So right. you've got to get up plenty high enough that you don't get sucked down on the other side. Yep. And uh, the way I was taught is you come at a ridge, say around a 45-degree angle to the ridge, and you're, you all the time you're trying to feel what the air's going to do. And then when you get ready to go over the ridge, turn them parallel to it. And, and if you can't feel that going up, just go on down pretty quick. You'll find a place where it's going to be lower, and then you can cross. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it's such a fascinating thing, and most people don't get to fly in mountains. Um, and certainly not places like this where, you know, we change 9,000 feet of elevation in 40 miles. Right. This is a very special place as far as verticality goes. And the way the wind moves through this country is pretty special as well. You're, you get what they call a Venturi effect in canyons. And Hurricane Creek is well named because um, if you have a 20 knot wind coming across from the southwest and Hurricane Creek is lying pretty much north and south or somewhat if you're headed north it's actually northeast it will actually increase to maybe 30 and uh, when it does that it creates a low pressure area and your airplanes to get in that deal and down it goes and uh, I know one time I had a uh, biologist and she kept wanting to get down closer and I told her I didn't think it was a good idea but I would try it <laughs> so I came down and got down below the ridge and all of a sudden I had pencils floating on the ceiling <laughs> and uh and I just came right on down the canyon and headed home and she says I'm not done and I said yeah I am <laughs> so oh man well, I think it's important to, to bring up that we are currently sitting at the Joseph Airport and Hurricane Creek is uh, about 150 <laughs> yards away from us right now. Um, it's an interesting approach to land at this airport because you basically fly straight towards a damn mountain with a huge drainage on both sides of it. And uh, in your, your final turn, you're right out over the, the top of that thing. Yep. Pretty cool. Yeah. A little bit intimidating. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's yeah. sometimes, you know, it's kind of nice having two air, airports close together. Uh, we have uh, Enterprise Airport's about uh, three and a half nautical miles north of us. And there are times there that the wind's blowing really bad and Joseph won't have any wind. But a lot of times Joseph will have nasty winds coming out of the, the southwest 
pretty strong crosswinds. You can also get some uh, wind shear. But you can go to Enterprise and there won't be any wind. So I don't know why it's like that, but it's kind of handy. Yeah. What is wind shear? Wind shear is a thing where, for instance, landing in a place where you have a bunch of trees, you'll have wind that you're coming into on above the trees. And, and as you're coming in, all of a sudden, the, the trees break the wind and your airspeed will change dramatically in just just a few seconds. So, and what does airspeed mean to an airplane? It means life. <laughs> <laughs> right. It means yeah. everything. It yeah. does. Yeah. yeah, that's what makes makes the dream work. Yep. That's a, a good example of some wind shear. Um, probably 25, 30 years ago, there was a, I forget what kind of plane it was. It was a, a commercial jet. Uh had a lot of passengers on board coming into, I forget, one of the places in Texas. They were coming in to land, and there was a thunderstorm in the area. And anytime you have a thunderstorm in the area, you can always have what they call wind shear. And the jet was coming in to land. He had a headwind, and all of a sudden, it became a tailwind. So that's a wind shear. And the result was disastrous. The airplane just suddenly dropped out of the air and uh, not enough room to recover. And uh, mm. they crashed. Man, scary stuff. But, you know, flying has also been one of these just monumental improvements for the way humans are able to to transport themselves, you know. And such such a recent invention, right? Yep. Like we're just getting the stuff figured out kind of right yep um where do you see aviation advancing like you know so many of these airplanes are old you know they're ancient ancient airplanes but we keep rebuilding all the parts that wear out and keep using them so in some ways it's changed very little but in other ways it's changed a lot talk to me about that well one of the reasons you're seeing a lot of ancient airplanes that keep getting rebuilt is because uh, some of these new airplanes are uh, anywhere from a half a million dollars to a million dollars. And 30 to 40 years ago, you could buy the same airplane for 30,000. Right. And, uh, and even though in those, you know, 30 years ago and let's say 1980, that's 40 years ago. Um, those are relatively new airplanes, what they're flying now. Um, there's airplanes that are built in the 30s and the 40s that are still flying commercially, like a DC-3. Right. Um, there's nothing today that's affordable that'll do what they do. And, and they have a real good safety record. Um, so it's, you can put a lot of money into an old airplane to bring it up to standards compared to the cost of a new airplane today the other big change i see is uh, what they call drones i don't know uh, i'm just reading about this outfit in pendleton uh, there's a lot of uh, experimentation they're doing with drones 
And these machines, I don't know what they cost, but they're about the size of a, a Cessna 150. And, mm. you know, they're big enough you could almost ride in them, except they're not built that way. And the guy sits on the ground, and he, he he's able to, with the cameras on board, he can fly that thing just like he was flying an airplane, but he sits on the ground flying it. And uh, and for certain things, you're not risking somebody's life doing that. Yeah. So for the jobs that don't require somebody to be in the seat, um, that's a that's a smart thing to do. Like mm-hmm. if we can, if we're just trying to get images of something or or you know take weather samples. Right. There's a lot of jobs that drones can do. We actually used a. Um, oh, you'll have to help me out. It was. Uh, it was the helicopter with two main rotor blades um, and no tail rotor. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like a Vertol or a Chinook? No. Um, the rotor blades look like they're uh, like oh. a, a blender kind of. Yeah. Um, looks like they're going to eat each other. Like I can't... a K-Max. K-Max. Yeah, it was a K-Max. Damnedest looking helicopter. They're pretty cool. Um, real, real thin, heavy lift helicopter. We had a K-Max in, uh, in Afghanistan that was... Um, unmanned and and they were doing load missions with it so you need to fly gear out to place where you know more than likely going to get shot at why uh why risk the pilot in addition to the aircraft yeah so yeah that's that's an interesting thing do you think we'll get to a point where you know some of our commercial jets will be unmanned well they say they are yeah that makes me nervous yeah I don't know if I'd ride in it with some with if nobody's up there in the cockpit. I don't know if I'd like that. Would you know? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, kind of interesting. No, it's it's an exciting future. In you know, even just a couple of years ago, these glass cockpits, you know, yeah. that had all these panels and gauges and looked so pretty. Um, in a lot of ways, they can get replaced by an iPad. that costs a thousand bucks. Yeah. Yep. Um, and some of those glass cockpits, how much did those things cost? Over $100,000? Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, we're kind of seeing things that were very expensive go back the other way and become more accessible. I think there's people out there that that don't understand that there are aircraft that they can affordably buy and go fly and, and have a good time in. Um, so what are some of those and, and what do some of those airplanes cost these days? Uh, you can still buy, uh, there's what they called an Aronka champ. They were a trainer that was popular right after world war two. And, uh, they, all these little companies, Piper, Aronka, um, I can't think of some of the other, well, Stinson was another one. Um, they started mass producing these airplanes because all these pilots are coming back from World War II. And so we're going to have an airplane available for all these guys that come back from the war. They figured, and, and to some extent that was true, but uh, one fellow that uh, I knew uh, when he got through with World War II, he was, uh, oh, he's qualified to fly a B-17, he never did leave the United States because war was over before he ever got any place. Terrific airplane. Yeah. B-17 was an important airplane. It was. And uh, so he was qualified to fly that. 
he got out of the service. He was going to be a flight instructor, but all these other guys were too. And he told me he just kind of gave up flying because he had to feed his family. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, they all these companies kind of went broke almost because they mass produced. They couldn't sell them then because they everybody was competing and they mm. just uh, they just too many out there and there's a glut in the market. So. And there's still a lot of those around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can still find J3 Cubs, uh, although now they're considered classic, so the price has gone up. Mm. There's still a few Stinsons around that you can get those, uh, relatively inexpensive. So um, w- what does that mean? Like, if you were to, to buy a Stinson that you could get in and fly and, and like, you know, had decent hours on it, what, what would that cost? Well, I haven't looked at any prices lately, but for a while you could buy one of those Stinsons for about 30000 that was a pretty nice airplane. Yeah. Um, Cessna 150, that's still a pretty good airplane you can buy for, I'm guessing, between twenty five and thirty. you know. So. I'd have to lose about 100 pounds to get in one of those things, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just like cut off one arm, one leg, get a little bit narrower. Yeah, they're they're uh, cozy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that's uh, where the term elbow room came from, and yeah. why it's not called elbows room because there's only room for one elbow at a time. No, the the one fifty. I mean, that's trained just hundreds of thousands of pilots. Yep, like that's a and for a while classic airplane. Yeah, that back oh probably twenty years ago, um, the price really started going up on one fifties mm. because uh, some of these foreign countries were buying them up. Yeah, because they were using them for training their people. Right. And uh, many years ago, I met a guy from Ghana, and he'd been in the Ghana Air Force, and that's what he had his first airplane to fly was a uh, Cessna one fifty. Yeah as a trainer, primary trainer, and then the next one he went to was a de Havilland of some kind. Mm. But, uh, and then basically most of the aircraft that he flew were de Havilland, but. Yeah. When I was in Kodiak this fall, um, it's kind of an interesting thing. A lot of Alaska, you know, is, is backcountry bush flying and, you know, big bush wheels and landing out there on the tundra or wherever. But on Kodiak, you can't land on vegetation anywhere. So it's, it's all water to water, mm. um, or for the, you know, the main, there's a couple of airstrips, you know, that I think there's some gravel bars and then there's the main mm. airport there. But, uh, but no, it's, it's mostly a float plane show to get around. There's quite a few mm. lakes on, on the Island. Um, and they were using to Havilland beavers. Oh yeah. Gosh, they're a cool airplane. I was so excited just to be around one. I'd never got to see one before. Pretty incredible. They're, uh. But they're expensive to operate. Yeah. Uh, they don't go fast. Yeah. And they burn lots of gas. Yeah. But uh, there's not anything else that'll do the job they do. Right. So. Yeah. Put quite a bit of gear and people in them. And um, they just seem tough. It seemed like a tough aircraft. Yep. And those haven't been made for a long time. No. I think they quit manufacturing them probably around 1960. Yeah. So 
Yeah, pretty amazing. Now you're rebuilding an airplane right now. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that little project. Not that little of a project. No. Uh, that's kind of one of them embarrassing things. <laughs> uh, yeah, I bought the airplane. Um, I wanted to use it for a backup. And uh, it just started out from the looks of the airplane. Uh, it looked real good. And uh, I knew that I was going to be replacing the motor. I had planned on that. The uh, avionics, I was figuring on changing those. And everything else seemed like a pretty solid airplane. And I did fly it. I probably put, I'm guessing, around six, seven hours on it. But the alternator quit working. And uh, so I brought it up to get it, the alternator fixed. And people kept coming in and looking at things and saying, oh, what's wrong here? This doesn't look good. And pretty quick, I, um, I had a rebuild project. Yeah. So. It's all torn apart now, but coming back together. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully this spring we'll have it going again. And what kind of airplane is it? It's actually a 182, a 1957 182. And uh, so when we put it back together, it'll be a 57, 58, 59, 60. <laughs> so what happened is uh, uh, there was a, a fellow lives up in, uh, I think he's in Barrow, Alaska. And uh, so he's want, he wanted an airplane, and so he's wanting to make two airplanes out of one. So he bought this airplane, had a good motor, and the motor wasn't hurt, but it had had a hard landing out in the tundra. And so they uh, he bought the, the salvage of it, and I've been able to use a lot of pieces off of it that he doesn't need to put on this airplane. So it saved quite a bit of money and... So it, anyway, it's it was a 60, so we'll have a kind of a combination 57 and a 60 together. So Cool. Yeah. It'll be fun. It'll be fun to finally get it back together and and, yep. and fly again. It's uh it's amazing to see kind of how simple these machines actually are when they're all taken apart. Yeah. And they really need to be simple, don't they? Yeah. 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 And uh I couldn't have done the work without Ken and and a young fellow by the name of Isaac, and uh, Isaac is um, he's what seventeen, and uh, he just has a mechanical mind, and he's just I couldn't have done it without him. That's he's cool. Just, he's just a neat kid and loves doing it. So, yeah. what kind of uh, backcountry repairs have you had to kind of patch together on airplanes over the years? Oh. Luckily, I haven't had to do anything out in the brush. Uh, Not for anybody else? Well, yeah, that. Yeah. We had a fellow from, I forget where he was from, and uh, but he lit out at Lord Flat, and I can't even remember what kind of airplane it was. But anyway, he, he lit out there, and it was some kind of a Naranka, and he bounced it, and when he... When he went, went up, the the oleo strut came apart, and when he came down, the thing was apart, and so he just hit on a wing, and it scooted it around, and 
he wasn't going any place. So a bunch of us went out there to help him, and and uh, they ended up having to drill a couple of holes in the sheet metal and wrap chains around the spars, and uh, they hired this helicopter outfit from over at um, Riggins, I guess. They're from Riggins. Mm-hmm. And so they got them to come in and pick that airplane up and haul it back to enter actually i think they took it back over to pittsburgh landing oh really uh either there or or, uh they might have taken it anyway wherever they took it so they could get a trailer to it and take the wings off and but they flew it out of there from lord flat it was so it was kind of hard luck but that's got to be interesting from the helicopter pilot's perspective, having an airplane with wings underneath of him that's trying to fly around as he's going. Yep. We had to tape uh, two-by-fours to the wings so it kills the lift. Oh, you tape them to the bottom? to the And to the top. And to the top. Yep. Okay. Otherwise, it kills it. it, it if you don't, the thing will try to fly, mm-hmm. and that can be pretty disastrous. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a lot of pressure. Well, if if the if if the helicopter is trying to take this airplane out and it tries to start flying, the helicopter pilot all he can do is just jettison. Right. And then you really got a problem. Yeah. So Yeah, she's not coming back from that one. Yep. Yeah. yeah, it was a rebuildable airplane. It just he wasn't gonna fly it out of there. Have you seen any interesting things with wildlife and doing all these wildlife surveys? Yeah. Um we talked about cougars, and uh, a couple of different times, I've watched cougars hiding from the elk, but the elk knew they were there, and I was flying with one fellow, and and uh, I said, there's a cat, and so we went out around and came back, and here was this cat hiding behind a log, and he was stretched out, the tail sticking straight back. And you could see him watching those elk, and the elk were watching him. They knew he was there. Hmm. And uh, so we buzzed him two or three times, and <laughs> and uh, he finally got up and left, but uh, spoiled his breakfast for that morning, probably. Yeah, gave an elk another day to live, though, so that's, that's right. Fun. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that is interesting. Well, you've had quite a quite a career here, and you've helped so many people so many young people get into flying and and the most important flight lesson i ever took was with you and we talked about it this morning but um the instructor that i'd been working with was um he he'd take away the controls all the time so when you're whenever something was going slightly wrong instead of giving you a chance to fix it he just kind of grabbed the controls and and uh, get you back on track so i i sort of had the illusion that that i knew how to land um and I really didn't. And when we came around the mountain here and and uh, we're, we're on final to come land here at Joseph, I was pretty long on the runway. Like I, I was not going to land on the numbers or anywhere close to it. And I thought we were just going to have to try again. And I was getting pretty nervous about it. And and uh, you said, there's, there's plenty of runway. I'm not going to let you kill me. You just try and figure it out. And, uh, and I did. And I it was just an, a great experience um, for you to kind of help help me with that and give me that confidence and make me do it on my own. Um, and 
you've done that for so many people and you've shown so many people this beautiful part of the world and kept them safe and doing it and, and hauled people out when they were hurt or needed help. Um, you're, you're just a legend. And, uh, I think it's, I think it's pretty cool, um, to be able to fly with you and, and hear all the stories and, you know, a couple years of your life you've spent in the air in this, yeah. in this place that most people can't fly in at all. Yeah. That's an amazing thing, Joe. So I appreciate your time here today. Um, if somebody wants to come out here and fly with you, how do they get a hold of you? Uh, probably just call call the house or call my <laughs> cell phone. I don't know. Just uh, search for Joe Spence Aviation? Yep. Yep. Okay. Well, thanks again, sir. And uh, I hope you continue to stay safe and, and look forward to seeing you fluttering around in this new airplane. Okay. All right. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. This episode was edited by Emily Brannigan, with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Artwork for the Six Ranch podcast was created by John Chatterlin and digitized by Celia Christofferson. If you enjoyed the show, I encourage you to share it with a friend and subscribe. You can find photos and more content on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.